Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This is being recorded for the listening week that begins February 16th, and your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Opening with an article from the Sunday, February 11th edition of the Boulder Daily Camera. This is an opinion piece, a commentary, by Savante Myrick. This Black History Month, Fight for the Freedom to Learn. A note on the author. Savante Myrick is sir, pardon me, serves as president and CEO of People for the American Way. This op-ed was distributed by otherwords.org. A little over a year ago, the College Board unveiled its long-awaited draft AP African American Studies curriculum. What happened next was sad and all too predictable. Florida officials led by Governor Ron DeSantis howled. They claimed the course, quote, lacks educational value and violated state laws against teaching about race and racism. The College Board initially caved to Florida's demands and said the course would be heavily redacted and then said it wouldn't. At the end of 2023, it released the final version of the course, and it's better, but it's still missing some important concepts. The new course omits any discussion of, quote, structural racism, and makes studying the Black Lives Matter movement, dash, modern black history by any measure, optional. That pretty much sums up the state of the fight against censorship and book banning in this Black History Month, colon. Better, but still problematic. On the plus side, the last few months have brought some very good news. School board candidates endorsed by the pro-censorship group Moms for Liberty went down to resounding defeats last fall. After Illinois became the first state to prohibit book bans, several states, including Colorado, Kansas, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New Mexico, Washington, and Virginia, introduced their own anti-ban bills. But the censorship movement isn't going away. Librarians nationwide are being targeted by threats and harassment. And the propaganda outfit PragerU continues to pump out the offensive, woefully inaccurate junk it calls edutainment for public schools that will buy it. So there's still work to do. Fortunately, the public is overwhelmingly on the side, pardon me, on the right side of this issue. Poll after poll shows that Americans don't support censorship and book bans in schools. Those of us who want children to have the freedom to learn are the majority. We understand that kids are better prepared for life and our country is better prepared to compete globally when education is historically accurate and reflective of the diversity of our culture. 
We understand that book banning is un-American and censorship is a tool of dictators. This majority needs to mobilize and can be and be heard at the ballot box. The defeat of pro-censorship school board candidates in 2023 was a great start. Now we have to take that momentum into the local, state, and national elections this fall. In the meantime, we also know that public pressure works. A public outcry got the board, pardon me, got the college board to change its plans for the African American Studies course. And when publisher Scholastic said it would segregate books about the black and LGBTQ communities at its school book fairs, the public was outraged and Scholastic reversed course. Together, we have the power to stop the censors who want to whitewash our history and deprive kids of facts and stories that help them to understand our world. That applies to the black experience in America, but also the experiences of LGBTQ people, indigenous peoples, people of diverse faiths, immigrants, people with disabilities, and more. Civil rights activists have pushed for decades for book publishers and educators to acknowledge and teach our full history and to awaken our consciousness as a nation. We refuse to go backward. Black History Month is a great time for us to commit to using the power that we have to protect the freedom to learn. Our kids and our country will be better for it. Next article comes from the Wall Street Journal, Friday, February 26th edition. Forgive me, that is Friday, January 26th. From U.S. News section, Black Entrepreneurs Try to Fill the Wealth Gap. Written by Jimmy Vilkind. In Albany, New York, networking groups work, pardon me, work to open more doors. Pardon me, I'm starting that over. In Albany, New York, networking groups work to open more doors to prosperity. Raishia Turner, a partner in the only black-owned law firm in New York's capital city, recently invited clients to the Albany Black Chamber of Commerce and Social Club for a holiday mixer. Her request was simple. Get to know each other. She said, quote, this is about growth and this is about networking, adding that she saw an opportunity for some of the entrepreneurs at the party to start doing business with each other. This, she said, is the mission of the Albany Black Chamber, which was formed in 2022 and opened its physical building last year, a few blocks from the state capitol. It joined the roster of more than 150 such groups that are affiliated with the U.S. Black Chambers. One of the main goals of boosting black entrepreneurship in communities such as Albany is to close the wealth gap between black and white Americans. A 2022 survey by the Federal Reserve found that a typical white family had more than six times the wealth of a typical black family. Charles DeBow, president of the National Black Chamber of Commerce, a group that is separate, me, that is separate from the U.S. Black Chambers, 
said there was an uptick in interest and investment in community-based economic development after the 2020 murder of George Floyd, and now the challenge is sustaining these operations as the political environment shifts, he said. While fostering business networks is a key service of chambers of commerce in general, it can be especially beneficial for black-owned small and medium-sized businesses, according to Shelley Stewart III, a New York-based senior partner at McKinsey and Company who leads its Institute for Black Economic Mobility. Chambers of Commerce can help advocate for grants for minority-owned businesses and provide technical assistance in applying, said Stewart. He said black chambers can put a special focus on such programs that general membership groups might not. A 2020 study by the firm found that while about 15% of white Americans hold some business equity, that is true for about 5% of black Americans, and that the average black person's equity is about one-third of the average white person's. Black people make up about 28% of Albany's roughly 100,000 residents, but were largely excluded from top government appointments by a Democratic Party establishment that controlled City Hall for most of the 20th century. Historians and city officials now acknowledge that city resources were steered away from black neighborhoods. Less street cleaning, fewer libraries, for example, and the member of black business owners remained small. Mark Egan, chief executive of the Capital Region Chamber, said his group has taken steps to be inclusive, but that black chamber pardon me, but the black chamber will fill a void. A major catalyst for the new organization is Ed Mitson, a white businessman who built a successful marketing firm that he partially sold in twenty twenty. He said he was shocked by Floyd's murder in May of that year. That summer, Mitson, who is 56, read an op-ed in a local paper by Jaquin Hoke, a 35-year-old real estate developer. Hoke was active with the Capital District Black Chamber of Commerce, which was later absorbed into the newer group, and challenged white people to match new rhetoric with actual results. Hoke said, quote, My family's been here for generations. We've worked hard. We kept our nose clean, and we still have nothing. The capital region needed to do a better job building out a business ecosystem that benefits everyone, he concluded. He and Mitson started driving around Albany's majority black neighborhoods, and eventually Hoke became CEO of a new nonprofit group that Mitson founded, Business for Good. That organization has invested in several black-owned businesses and helped spur the creation of the Albany Black Chamber. Mitson grew up just outside of the city and worked at a local hospital before starting the healthcare marketing firm Finger Paint in 2008. In 2022, he bought and renovated the Colonial Revival-style building that has housed Albany's University Club, and then donated it to the Albany, me, the Albany Black Chamber. Mitson also began providing grants and meeting with several black entrepreneurs to discuss marketing and other aspects of their business. He said the goal of his entrepreneurial philanthropy, he calls it, 
was to help build wealth and equity to more endurably address disparities in housing, health, and crime. Mitson said, quote, It's not enough for people in the inner city to just work hard and have it be fine. The deck is stacked against them. Some of the people he has worked with include Turner, whose firm Wallace Turner Law is located in a building that Mitson bought and renovated. He has helped Kizzy Williams, a restaurateur, purchase a delivery van and updated the facilities in her cafe. Allie B's Cozy Kitchen, both Turner and Williams, oh, that's the title of her cafe, Allie B's Cozy Kitchen, both Turner and Williams are members of the Albany Black Chamber. Mark Carter started selling flowers in the 1980s on a main thoroughfare in Albany's majority black Arbor Hill neighborhood. His customers were state workers, mostly white, who were stuck in traffic while driving from the suburbs to downtown offices. He eventually established Tasha Florist, named for the family cat. But there were few other black retailers at the time he could lean on for advice. He and his daughter, Chanel Carter Maddox, recalled. Before the black, pardon me, before the Albany Black Chamber moved into its home, Carter Maddox said she could remember being the only black person present when she taught classes on floral arrangement at the former university club. She said it was heartening that this same space was filled with black and brown entrepreneurs at the holiday party. Next article also from the Wall Street Journal. This is written by Robert L. Woodson, Sr., How Cities Can Get Rid of Violence I was born in a segregated Philadelphia in 1937. When I was growing up amid ruthless discrimination, the young and elderly could still walk the streets safely without fear of being attacked. We were denied civil rights that we later fought to be rightfully given to us, but we also enjoyed a relative standard of safety. From emancipation on, peaceful black cities were the norm, not the exception, in America. Yes, there were places where black prosperity provoked envy, colon, in Oklahoma in 1921, a white mob set fire to the Black Wall Street area in the Greenwood District of Tulsa. But peaceful black cities existed across the country, including in Georgia, Arkansas, North Carolina, Illinois, and Mississippi. My hometown of long ago was a completely different place from the Philadelphia of the post-civil rights era. It became plagued by crime, poverty, and feuding gangs. By the early 1900s, such cities as New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles were each reporting between 900 and 2,200 homicides a year and homicide rates that exceeded 30 per 100,000 residents. People who could afford to flee to the suburbs vanished, taking tax revenue with them. Explanations for the rapid urban deterioration abounded, with progressives pointing the finger at poverty and racism and conservatives blaming individual and community moral failings. There's plenty of blame to go around. Liberals have a point that white flight and the choice to put interstate highways through black economic centers in some cities played a huge role. 
And conservatives are correct that welfare policies that discouraged women from marrying the fathers of their children and so-called urban renewal projects that used eminent domain to raise black-owned homes and replace them with public housing proved an incubator for violent crime. Whatever caused homicide and violent crime to surge, the legal victories of the civil rights movement clearly were no panacea. But something interesting happened toward the end of the 1990s and in the following decades. Crime rates began to go down. By the mid-2010s, Los Angeles and New York had annual homicide tallies in the low hundreds. Social scientists were predictably less interested in crime's decline than in its rise. Most progressives continued to see economic factors behind the shift, while most conservatives credited broken windows policing and other conservative policy innovations. There is another, more powerful explanation, colon. The crime wave activated community, quote, antibodies. Local leaders and the neighborhood organizations they formed to address these problems. In the paper, Community and the Crime Decline, The Causal Effects of Local Nonprofits on Violent Crime, from 2017 by Patrick Sharkey, Gerard Torrets Espinosa, and Dalaram Takyara, says that such local efforts are largely, quoting, overlooked in the theoretical and empirical literature on the crime decline. They wrote, Drawing on a panel of 264 cities spanning more than 20 years, we estimate that every 10 additional organizations focusing on crime and community life in a city with 100,000 residents leads to a 9% reduction in the murder rate, a 6% reduction in the violent crime rate, and a 4% reduction in the property crime rate. Cities began to heal from the inside out when residents took control of the streets. What Mr. Sharkey et al. documented in aggregate, I experienced on the ground. In the Woodson Center's Washington office in 1997, my colleagues and I negotiated a truce among feuding gangs in the city's Benning Terrace public housing development. Gang-related homicides in the project dropped from 53 in the two years before the truce to zero for the 12 years after the truce. In Omaha, Nebraska, in 2006, a businessman named Willie Barney mobilized a handful of people and launched the Empowerment Network. The organization connected and supported local leaders from all over the city. It brought policemen together with church leaders, neighborhood associations, business leaders, and nonprofits, all to improve the community. The Empowerment Network helped cut Omaha's gun violence rate in half between 2009 and 2022. Mr. Barney's work transformed Omaha and undoubtedly saved lives. We have deployed a similar playbook across the country. The Woodson Center has helped establish, quote, violence-free zones in more than 30 U.S. schools where mentors work with young people. The mentors are often former gang members 
all of whom hail from the same local area as so-called at-risk students. The mentors have the trust of the students and the moral authority that makes their words resonate. This kind of success abounds elsewhere, but nobody talks about it. Progressives show little interest in any activity that doesn't condemn racism and poverty. And while conservatives are quick to blame a lack of personal responsibility when communities are struggling, they are slow to credit personal responsibility when those same communities improve. Unfortunately, crime is rising again in some American cities. The Woodson Center has responded with the Voices of Black Mothers initiative, deploying mothers of homicide victims to form partnerships with police and heal neighborhoods from within. In time, we are hopeful that these communities will go the way of Benning Terrace and Omaha. To rebuild our urban centers, we must first restore peace. We've done it before, and we must do so again. A note on the author, Mr. Woodson is founder and president of the Woodson Center and author of Red, White, and Black, Rescuing American History from Revisionists and Race Hustlers. The next article comes from an online source called Nice News. It was published February 13th, written by Rebecca Brandis. Black Men in White Coats, the organization empowering black kids to become doctors. In 2018, black men accounted for only 2.6% of physicians in the United States, despite black Americans comprising 12.8% of the population. What's more shocking, however, is that the former figure showed no, quote, statistically significant difference from what it was in 1940, according to a study out of UCLA, meaning no progress has been made in nearly 80 years. That's where Black Men in White Coats comes in. The organization was founded in 2013 by Dr. Dale Okorodudu, a pulmonary and critical care physician following a report from the Association of American Medical Colleges that showed the number of black men applying to medical schools was decreasing. Quote, black men are extremely intelligent, extremely savvy, extremely innovative, and can be strong leaders when given the opportunity. This is a population with phenomenal potential that is being underutilized, said Okorududu, adding, We as black male physicians must represent our fields with integrity and pride in order to establish a strong legacy for our sons. When they thrive, we all thrive. End quote. On a mission to inspire and empower black youths through mentorship and exposure, Black Men in White Coats started with a short docu-series highlighting black doctors working at different hospitals and medical centers around the U.S. in the videos. Pardon me, that's in the videos. The physicians explain what they do and why they're passionate about it, allowing young people a front-row seat to the positive impact those professionals are making in the world. 
quote, there are any given number of fantastic and amazing role models that suggest a young African-American male can be a basketball player or a football player, says Duke University neurobiologist Dr. Kafui Desirasa in one episode of the series, explaining that the same can't be said of black men in the medical field. He continues, I think having a picture of what your life can look like is a powerful motivating factor. Today, the organization has expanded to include a podcast and locally organized youth summits around the country, which invite young people to get involved and interact with mentors and role models. Quote, it's cool to see African-American doctors because you don't usually see that when you walk into a hospital, said middle schooler Zim Jackson, a straight-A student, when talking to CBS News during one of the summits held last April at Merritt College in Oakland, California. Okorodudu added, Even if they don't choose to become doctors, we are here to help them to become successful in life, period. The mission to get more black men into white coats is also driven by the fact that black men have the second lowest life expectancy in the country, and studies suggest that increased racial diversity in the medical field can lead to more positive outcomes for those being treated, particularly patients of color. Quote, what we've learned over the years is that the earlier people get introduced to health care s- careers, the more likely it is that they will enter health care careers, said Dr. Peter Igarashi, dean of the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University, when he was speaking about a 2023 youth, oh, pardon me, when he was speaking at a 2023 youth summit, and he went on, the most important goal today is to promote a diverse health care workforce, and the reason for that is that very diverse healthcare teams outperform teams that are not as diverse. End quote. Black Men in White Coats has also produced a feature-length documentary film. It says click here to watch the film and learn how to screen it in an educational or institutional setting, and I will read that website address. It is https colon slash slash trailer dot bmwc movie dot com slash trailer and there's a string of numbers that go with the word trailer it's trailer one six zero two nine zero zero nine zero six seven nine two Possibly one could find this off of Googling black men in white coats as well. Next piece is an opinion piece posted on theroot.com on the 16th, written by Wayne Washington. From current events, Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade violated a black American rule. What a sad mess. Black people everywhere shook their heads as they watched the two black attorneys take us back years. 
No matter how the Fanny Willis disqualification hearing ultimately plays out, these things are clear, colon. Willis and Nathan Wade, the lawyer Willis hired to handle the election fraud case against Trump and company in Georgia, violated age-old rules black Americans have long tried to observe, which, at their core, hold to this simple premise— Do not give white folks an opportunity to question your integrity and professionalism. A modern-day addendum to that rule would add, Do not give white folks an opportunity to question your integrity and professionalism on international television with the whole world watching. Trump and his MAGA misfits tried to bluff and bully their way into a second term, ordering Georgia, Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger to, quote, find him enough votes to undo the electoral ass-whipping he got from Joe Biden. Willis didn't just call BS on that bid. She brought the hammer, filing mob-style RICO charges against Trump and his Confederates, which would expose them all to long prison sentences if convicted. She went big game hunting. Apparently, though, she forgot that big game, most especially rich white men in suits, have sharp teeth, claws, and horns. They hire lawyers, they leak to the press, they conflate, and they insinuate. This ain't new and accomplished. Grown, a black folks like Willis and Wade should know the game, except they just got caught with their pants down, just about literally. If Willis is to be believed, she hired Wade, an attorney who is not an experienced criminal prosecutor, before she began a romantic relationship with him. If Wade is to be believed, his relationship with Willis started before his marriage to another woman legally ended, wasn't really an extramarital affair because he considered his marriage to have been irretrievably broken back in 2015 when he says his now ex-wife had her own extramarital affair. Uh Uh-huh, right. Why is the timing of this relationship important? Because lawyers for Trump and his pals argue that Wade used public money from the Willis appointment to party up with his paramour, a salacious allegation sure to draw attention away from the criminal conduct laid out in those RICO charges. They want the judge to disqualify Willis's office, which would put them one step away from getting the whole case tossed. Even if those lawyers don't ultimately succeed, Willis and Wade have failed in a major way, and it's not just the clutched pearl concern about their extramarital relationship. It's that Willis, in the biggest, most high-profile moment of her career, pardon me, I'll read this as written, took a dump at her own dinner table. It's that Wade did exactly the same thing. Both of them did this when they knew or should have known that rich, not well-meaning white folks would be combing through their garbage for anything that would foul the case. They did this when black people, rightly or wrongly, would be defined by their professionalism in the eyes of many, and they did this when the country at large would be depending on them to bring Trump to justice. 
I'm not speaking from some moral mountaintop about the propriety or impropriety of the Willis-Wade relationship. I don't wear pearls. But spare me the punditry of this moment as some high-stakes win for them. They should never have been in those witness chairs. Deep down, below the surface of their anger and combative testimony, they've got to know that too. Next, we go to the Texas Observer for an in-depth piece titled Jim Crow Still Lingers in Bonham, Civil Rights Lawyers Say. This author is Josephine Lee, and I do not see a date when this was posted, but it was posted online fairly recently. In January 2022, the Edwards family moved into the city of Bonham, driving past a Confederate statue in front of the Fannin County Courthouse as they made their way to their new home. Overlooking the city, one side of the statue's inscription reads, quote, to the Confederate soldiers who sacrificed their lives for a just cause, this monument is lovingly dedicated. Quote. The other says, quote, They fought for principle, their homes, and those they loved. On fame's eternal camping ground, their silent tents are spread, and glory guards with solemn sound the bivouac of the dead. End quote. Only a few hours later, a police officer pulled over the car of the biracial couple, Sadie, who is white, Kevin, who is black, and their kids in the back seat. Allegedly for driving 37 miles per hour in a 35 mile per hour zone. The officer claimed he smelled marijuana and threatened to pull everyone out of the car. Sadie told the Texas Observer in a recent interview, quote, That was our first night coming to stay in the new home that we had just bought, and I had a moment of, oh God, what did we do? During his first week of school, other kids taunted the Edwards' 12-year-old son, to his name is Brilliant, telling him to, quote, go back and pick cotton. Over the next year, he faced a series of racially motivated attacks by students, school officials, and police officers, resulting in his unjustified arrests and removal from school at the age of 13 in December 2022, according to allegations in a new civil rights complaint. Yesterday, attorneys with the advocacy organizations Texas Appleseed, Texas Civil Rights Project, Disability Rights Texas, and the National Center for Youth Law filed a civil rights complaint with the Federal Department of Justice on behalf of Brilliant and CJ, another Bonham ISD student who separately faced discrimination both as a black student and as a student with disabilities. The complaint alleges Bonham Independent School District perpetuated a racially hostile environment in the case of both students and a hostile educational environment on the basis of disability in CJ's case. Quoting, Students of color deserve safe, supportive educational environments free from racial harassment and targeting by peers and school staff, said Renuka Reggae, 
I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, might be Reg, spelled R-E-G-E, Policy Advisor for Texas Appleseeds Educational Justice Project. She went on, unfortunately, BISD has created the opposite, pushing students of color out of school through pervasive racial slurs by peers and indifference from school staff and persistent racial targeting by the SRO that results in disciplinary alternate alternative school placement and arrest. Bonham ISD officials have not responded to the observer's request for comment. After this story was published, Superintendent Kelly Trompler released a public statement writing, quote, The district denies any allegations of discriminatory treatment of students or other individuals, end quote. Sadie said, the sad thing is I'm saying the same prayer for my son that parents a hundred years ago were saying for theirs. I just want my child and other children to be treated equally. They shouldn't have to walk through life feeling like they don't belong. Brilliant told the Observer that since he started sixth grade at Bonham ICD, He repeatedly complained to teachers and administrators about students who made racial slurs, but even when such offensive comments were made within the earshot of adults, he said that he was told that he needed proof. In a school district where only 6% of the students are black, the complaint alleges that Brilliant was repeatedly targeted for racial harassment by other students, school officials, and city police officers. The complaint details several incidents. In the spring of 2020, when Brilliant was playing at the park beside the school, he noticed a pair of white boys fighting. A video obtained by the observer shows one white boy pummeling another one on the ground. At one point, the unnamed white boy releases the other boy and says, quote, Go get my GD gun. End quote. According to the complaint, Brilliant understood this as a gun threat and called the city police. But when Bonham ICD police officer William Abbott arrived with another school resource officer and five city cops, quote, they simply waved at the white boys who were fighting and instead approached Brilliant, who was still on the phone with dispatch. They searched Brilliant's bag and asked if he had a gun. Brilliant told the observer that only after Abbott and other officers interrogated him for about 30 minutes did they briefly question the boys who had been fighting. When Sadie attempted to file a complaint with the police department, Mike Bankston, who was Bonham police chief at the time, told her that he lacked an internal affairs division to investigate the officers, including Abbott, who is still listed on the city's website as a police detective. Sadie said, quote, I've been told over and over that Fannin County has its own laws, that they run things differently than other counties. Captain Terry Eddington told the observer over the phone that Abbott retired several years ago and that there has always been an internal affairs division at the city police department. Bankston retired in March 2023. Around the same month, Brilliant, who was then 12, made another complaint to the principal Carly Fowler at I.W. Evans Elementary School. Scared for his life, he told Fowler that the father of a white female friend had threatened to fight and shoot him. According to the civil rights complaint, his friend's father, quote, 
called him the N-word, and yelled at him for hanging out with his daughter because he is black. End quote. Brilliant and Sadie told the observer that they showed Fowler a Snapchat message the father sent to him through his daughter, calling him a one-half N-word and his mom an N-lover. Brilliant got no response, but a few days later he was called into the principal's office. This time he found Fowler waiting there with Officer Abbott. Sadie later found out the same friend's father had called the school to complain that Brilliant sent his daughter an inappropriate video of a farmer twerking. For this, Brilliant received in-school suspension for five days and was told any other incident would land him in out-of-school suspension or the District Alternative Education Program. D-A-E-P. Sadie said to the observer that what she told the district, pardon me, the school officials, quote, when my son came to you a couple of days ago fearing for his safety, you told him it was after school hours, so there was nothing you could do. But then, when the white girl's daddy calls about something that obviously happened after school hours, you were on board, end quote. Brilliant's experience in the Bonham School District would only get worse as he began 7th grade at L.H. Rather Junior High School. According to several other incidents described in the Civil Rights Complaint, the document describes how Abbott followed Brilliant and other kids of color around at a football game in October 2022, forbidding them from leaving the bleachers. Abbott even pulled another kid of color out of the bathroom while he was using it. Sadie said she confronted Abbott for targeting black students while white kids were not surveilled. She told the observer, I told Officer Abbott that he wanted to corral the black kids, but then I asked the white kids there, who I'd seen going up and down the bleachers all night, have you been told you have to remain in the bleachers? And they said, no, ma'am. End quote. She was then told she could leave Bonham if she didn't like it. About a month later, on December 5, 2022, Abbott handcuffed and arrested Brilliant and another black student at school in front of other students. Abbott charged both 13-year-olds with indecent sexual contact with a minor, a felony, claiming the two boys had touched a white girl's breasts back in September. According to the civil rights complaint, even though the police later dropped these charges, finding them to be untrue, Abbott's actions forced Brilliant out of school, and he has been in the district's DAEP since December 20, pardon me, that's December 9th. I think that means of 2022, yes. The complaint alleges that school officials handled complaints differently depending on the race of the student. Earlier that same year, a black female friend of Brilliant's was surrounded by four white guys who poked her and called her a, quote, black monkey, the complaint states, quote, One of these male students is a BISD teacher's son, and the teacher defended her son's action by saying it was a joke and that people are so sensitive. After the white boy's parents complained, the students were not sent to DAEP, but instead received a few days of in-school suspension. Brilliant told the observer that late last year, Another black female friend had reported to school administration the two white boys were taking photos of her in the school bathroom, and officials did nothing. For more than a year after the second arrest, 
Judge Butler has been pushing Brilliant to plead guilty in exchange for official permission to return to school. He and his mother have refused, saying he's innocent. Quote, I told them all of you are very sick people to use Brilliant's wanting-to-be-normal kid as a plea bargaining tool. There's no way you know he is going to plead guilty for something that he didn't do, said Sadie. The trial date has been postponed three times already and is now set for August 24th, 2024. Brilliant said, I just want to go back to school. Civil rights attorneys argue in the complaint that Bonham ISD violated Brilliant's rights under both the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which prohibits state actors from depriving individuals of their rights based on race and national origin, and also the Title IV of the Civil Rights Act by intentionally discriminating against black students, creating a racially hostile educational environment. The complaint alleges that another Bonham ISD student, CJ, was also unfairly singled out by law enforcement simply for being a young black teenager. Both CJ and his grandmother requested us not to use their names for fear of retribution by authorities. She reveals that when CJ was 16 years old, he was asked by friends to film a fight between two white boys and in the aftermath, C.J. was the only one in the group charged with a felony. As a condition for his probation, he was required to graduate with a high school diploma. He ended up attending DAEP, where every day he spent nearly seven hours straight in front of an online learning program called Edgenuity. According to the complaint, there were only two instructors for grades 6 to 12, not enough for the students to have P.E. or get assistance with different subjects. The advocacy organizations are now asking the Federal Department of Justice to intervene and require Bonham ISD to institute training, data collection of students' complaints, and policies to protect students from discrimination based on their race and disability status. They are also seeking to compel the district to reevaluate a student's disabilities and to provide services and support before referring any students to a tru truancy court in CJ's case. The complaint mostly targets the school district for violating civil rights laws, but it also blames the Bonham Municipal Court, pardon me, for perpetuating the discrimination against CJ. Use it by using the truancy system to oust a student with disabilities. At 70 years old, CJ's grandmother has lived in Bonham all her life. She was in the fifth grade when Bonham ICD finally followed integration orders in 1965. She had to start in the integrated schools one year behind grade level because black students had been given textbooks two years after white students used them. She recalls that even within the integrated schools, black and white students still drank from different water fountains and showered in different stalls after gym class. She says, pardon me, when I asked her what progress she's seen in Bonham since she was a child, she says, quote, there is still a lot of work to do. Moving back to the New York Times, or maybe 
This is our first New York Times article for this week, perhaps. This was posted February 11th, written by Nick Corsaniti and Maya King. Black churches in Georgia unite to mobilize voters in a key battleground. Two of the state's largest church groups are teaming up in a rare effort they say is motivated by this year's stakes and new voting restrictions in Georgia. Two of the largest black church groups in Georgia are formally uniting for the first time to mobilize black voters in the battleground state ahead of the November presidential election. The two congregations, the African Methodist Episcopal Church and the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, plan to combine their resources and their more than 140,000 parishioners in the state for the Get Out the Vote program, which they are set to announce on Monday at the Georgia Capitol. Their efforts, which are for now will be concentrated only in Georgia, are meant to reinvigorate the black church as a powerful driver of voter turnout at a time when national polls point to lagging political energy among black Americans and slipping enthusiasm for President Biden, who owes his 2020 rise to the White House, to their support. The two churches have long broadly pushed to expand and protect civil rights and voting rights across the country, but they have generally not coordinated their messages or shared resources. Now, however, their leaders, Bishops Reginald T. Jackson and Thomas L. Brown Sr., say they see the stakes of this year's elections as well as recently passed laws restricting voting rights and restructuring congressional districts in Georgia as compelling reasons to work toward a shared goal. This is serious, critical, said Bishop Brown of the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, who presides over its roughly 300 churches in Georgia. He went on, We have to take leadership, and we have to make sure that our people are empowered, and particularly in rural Georgia— We have to make sure that we're on the ground. He said at another point that, quote, in the civil rights movement, at least in the late 60s in particular, there were more solidarity, there was more solidarity among churches across denominational lines. He said, I think we've kind of waned after some of those advancements have been made. The push by the churches, whose congregants lean heavily democratic, comes as Mr. Biden struggles to rebuild his support among black voters. In the 2020 election, Donald J. Trump won just 11% of the black vote in Georgia, according to exit polls. But in October, a poll from the New York Times found Mr. Trump drawing 19% of the voters in the state, those voters in the state. Quote, with the importance of this election and with hearing all around the country about blacks are not motivated to vote, and some blacks have decided they're not going to vote, we thought it was important to do something together formally, said Bishop Jackson, who presides over Georgia's more than 500 African Methodist Episcopal churches. The budget for the voting program is modest, between 200000 and 500000 but church leaders say the goal is to provide the two churches with a single guiding voice. Other black faith groups are also working to turn out voters this year, Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II of Poor People's Campaign, the Economic Justice Coalition, inspired by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., announced on Thursday a 30-state voter engagement campaign that is set to begin next month. 
In December, the National Action Network and the Conference of National Black Churches announced a Get Out the Vote, a joint Get Out the Vote campaign that will also try to fulfill pressing needs like vaccinations in many communities. Black churches have for decades played a pivotal role in turning out black voters, often fueling Democratic victories. In Georgia, they turned out voters en masse en masse in 2020, helping Mr. Biden flip the state blue. And they did so again in the Senate campaigns of 2021 and 2022 that Democrats also won. In part, the cooperation between the two churches serves as a response to a well-established political network of predominantly white, conservative, evangelical churches in Georgia and beyond. Their congregants are a key Republican constituency that has helped shape the party's policy goals for decades. In Georgia, evangelical denominations make up more than 50% of all Christian churches, while the share of historically black churches is 16%. Bishop Jackson said, Unfortunately, for the last 30, 40 years, the black church has not been as persistent or consistent in motivating and educating our community as it relates to issues that affect them. And what has happened, which is really frustrating to me, he goes on, is that the white evangelicals have used that as an opportunity to steer many people into what we believe is an unchristian mindset. During the 2020 election, Bishop Jackson spearheaded a program called Operation Voter Turnout, which focused on voter education, registration drives, assistance with absentee ballots, and a coordinated Sunday voting push. Now the lessons from that effort will be spread throughout the congregations of both churches. Their program will will include regular listening sessions about politics and workshops about voting creating personal voter plans for congregants to cast their ballots and persuade their families to do the same, and weekly voter registration efforts. Voter registration will take place every Sunday in our churches, said Cheryl Davenport-Dozier, who helps coordinate engagement efforts for the AME Church of Georgia. And in the rural communities that were still reeling since COVID, we continue to have outreach. She added, sometimes it's up to 100 people that are coming through and we'll have our voter registration forms there so we're reaching people. Though some of those who show up are homeless, she said, they still have the right to vote. Bishop Brown said the listening sessions would be particularly important to help church leaders understand why some black voters in the state are feeling apathetic. He said, It's one thing to read about the apathy and disgruntlement about the Biden administration or whoever. I think we need to have listening sessions where we can dialogue with people on the ground about what's going on, what the dissatisfactions are, what the disappointments are, and address as much as possible with facts and resolve. Indeed, leaders in both churches believe there is still time to re-energize one of the most influential voting groups in Georgia. The Reverend Willie J. Barber II said, Regardless of what anyone says, black people do believe in the institutions that are in place to protect our rights. He also works on civic engagement efforts for the AME Church in Georgia and has the same name as Mr. Barber of the Poor People's Campaign. And Reverend Willie Barber went on, 
One of the concerns is that they feel that they could easily go away. And how are we going to stop that from happening? How am I going to keep democracy alive so that we can continue to live? End quote. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.